1 John, the exhortation to examine yourself, test yourself, and uh, what an important command that is in our day when Christianity is popular, the kind of American Christianity that we see today where you make a profession of faith, but you live for yourself, you live as the Lord of your own life, and so it is absolutely imperative that we do that, and that's exactly what we'll continue to do this morning as we work through 1 John. We'll continue to examine our hearts and our lives in the light of Scripture that we might know that we are indeed in the faith. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll continue our study of 1 John. Lord, we thank You for the various means of grace that You have given to us, Your church, these ways by which we come to behold more of Your glory, the vehicles by which You bring us along on the path of sanctification and make us more and more like our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the longing of our heart, Lord. We thank You for all of the truth we've heard this morning, the, the truth that we have sung this morning, the truth that we've heard read to us from the Scripture readings this morning, and the truth that we're going to dig into now as we open up the text of 1 John and dive deep into the truth, drinking deeply from the well of Scripture, that our hearts and souls may be nourished on the sound words of the faith. That is our desire, Lord. We thank you for the chapter we just read, Lord. We see Paul's seriousness with the matter of church discipline and coming to Corinth to make sure that things were well off doctrinally and morally. We see a troubled church there and and Paul took those things seriously. And But the ultimate hope was restoration. Lord, we, we see that in the text. We see Paul's love for the flock, his desire to see them examine themselves, his desire to see peace and unity in the church. And Lord, that's what we want in our own local church. We want our own local church to, start to thrive in unity and peace and the truth. A unity that is centered on the truth, around the truth. And I pray that all of us would have that same passion and love and for the purity of the local church that Paul had. Lord, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is with us. We pray that that would be with us this morning, that the triune God himself, you, O oh Lord, would meet with your people, that your grace would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth, that your peace would reign in our hearts and that your love would be at the forefront of our minds. And as we behold the glory of God and the love of God in the gospel, that our love for you would increase, our obedience would grow ever greater, and our lives would reflect the honor and glory of our Savior. We pray these things to that end. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me uh, one final time to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. This morning we will finish chapter 4 by concluding the, our examination of the passage that we began looking at last time, and that is verses 17 through 21. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. And just to remind you of the context once again, so you know where we are and where we've been and where we're going, uh, you should be able to recall that the Apostle John wrote this letter, and he wrote it, from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor, and he wrote the letter because of a group of false teachers that were seeking to deceive them. Some heretics had snuck in there and were trying to lead astray the saints at Asia Minor, and John, out of a love for the flock, desired to warn them against this dangerous heresy. 
Now these false teachers have been identified by some as what we could call proto-Gnostics. Uh, the heresy that they propagated was essentially incipient Gnosticism. A heresy that would be more fully developed in the second century, but the seeds of which were already sown in the first century. Uh, these heretics really held to a form of philosophical dualism. They taught that matter is evil inherently, but spirit is good. Therefore, there is no way, they would assert, that the true God, who is pure spirit and transcendent light, there's no way He would have created the evil material world. So where did the world come from? Well, it came from another God, an evil God, whom they refer to as the Demiurge. In fact, there were even heretics early in the church history that said that God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, was actually this evil God who created the world, and that it was the God, the Father of the New Testament, that was the good God who came to redeem His people out of the world. But this dualism led to many erroneous conclusions, many terrifying consequences, one of which was that they had an elitist attitude. You see, in this system, salvation is not deliverance from sin. It's not being rescued from God's wrath. Salvation is to be delivered from the body and the material world. And that comes through this secret gnosis or knowledge that is available only to a few spiritual elite. That obviously led to pride, and in their pride, they looked down upon the true Christians who were lower on the level of knowledge than they were. Another consequence is that they had an erroneous view of sin and obedience. They taught that when I sin, it's just my evil body running its natural course, but I don't really sin with my spirit. And therefore, they would do, as we said in chapter 1, they would actually walk in the darkness of sin while simultaneously denying they had any sin at all. That is absolute absurdity to the highest degree, but that is exactly what these heretics would do. But perhaps their most dangerous error was their Christological error, their denial of the true person and work of Christ. In this system, Jesus is not really the true God. He's just one of many lesser beings or kind of lesser gods that come from Him, almost like an angelic being. And He didn't come into the world to die for sinners. He couldn't do that anyway because He wasn't really a man either. He just seemed to be a man. He came into the world to give this secret gnosis to enlighten us and lead us back into the truth. So this was clearly a dangerous and erroneous view of Christ. At the heart of this then, was a denial of the very basics of Christianity. A denial of the Gospel itself. This was no trivial matter. This was the Gospel at stake. These false teachers had a flawed view of Christ, a flawed view of love, and a flawed view of obedience. And they had essentially invented their own counterfeit version of Christianity that posed a very dangerous threat. I told you over and over again, the most dangerous form of false teaching is the one that comes under the guise of the truth. False teachers do not bring their trumpets and announce at the very beginning, hey, I'm a false teacher. They're more subtle than that. So the most dangerous form of false teaching is the error that comes under the guise of Christianity. Those who say, yeah, I love Christ, I believe in Christ, I'm a Christian, and yet they secretly introduce their destructive heresies. And it deceives the hearts 
of the unsuspecting. That's what these heretics had done. They had invented their own Gnostic version of Christianity. They would believe in Jesus, just the wrong Jesus. They believed in salvation, but a wrong view of salvation. They believed in God, but it was the wrong God. And this, of course, was very troubling to the believers of Asia Minor, because you see, many of these false teachers actually began in the church. They started there. Back in chapter 2, verse 19, John said, they went out from us. They started in the church, started off well, bought into these destructive errors, and then left the church, and now they were seeking to deceive the believers that remained, the faithful. These false teachers taught that they were the truly enlightened ones. They were the ones who were the spiritual elite. They had arrived at the truth. And perhaps some of these people were even the friends of these members of the churches of Asia Minor who had left and told them, you've got it wrong. You're simple. You've not been enlightened. This was threatening the assurance of these saints. This was shaking their confidence in their salvation. So John, as a preventative means, wrote this letter as a series of tests by which we can distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity, a true believer and a false believer. He states his theme in chapter 5, verse 13. There he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the theme, Christian assurance. John wanted his readers to be confident in the validity of their salvation. And to provide them with that assurance, he presented three tests over and over again in this letter by which that assurance could be attained. And these three tests correspond directly with the errors of the false teachers. The three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. True Christians believe the truth doctrinally, they obey the truth morally, And they love in truth socially or relationally. That is the mark of a true Christian. And we've seen these tests over and over again. John is repetitive. I've told you Paul is more linear, more logical. Here's point one, here's point two, here's point three, here's my conclusion, I'm finished. John says, here's point one, here's point two, now let me go back. He keeps circling around and as if he is expanding our understanding of these same themes by constantly dealing with them over and over again. And now, we've come to chapter 4, and we are yet again dealing with the theme of love, the social test, the relational test. Let me read our passage for you. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 17. John writes, By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. As I've told you before, 
the theme here is clearly love. Love. John uses a form of that word 11 times in these five verses. It is no doubt his dominant focus here. A theme that he repeats over and over again, and a theme that is very constant in the Scripture all throughout the Bible. This command to love goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Go to Leviticus 19.18. There we're commanded to love our neighbor as our what? As ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're commanded again over and over again in the New Testament to love our neighbor. Jesus, of course, practically raises the bar. John says it's an old commandment, but it's a new commandment because it's new in Him. Love your neighbor as yourself becomes now love your neighbor as Christ loved you. Love is exemplified in the selfless, substitutionary, sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. We're to love like Him. And that command is essentially given by every prominent figure in the New Testament. Jesus commanded us to love. Paul commanded us to love. Peter commanded us to love. Jude commanded us to love. And, of course, John commanded us to love. Even more than that, the love that we're called to is often defined for us in the New Testament. The world tells us love is a fuzzy feeling. Love is a sentimental card. Love is a word we throw around. We love our cats and dogs, and we love our microwave, and we love our new car, and our shoes, and our Nikes, and so on and so forth. That's not love. The Bible defines love for us very clearly. We know in John 15, 13, Jesus said, No one has greater love than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That's love. Selfless sacrifice, self-giving. The love that is supremely displayed by our Lord on the cross. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, John said, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's love. It is a self-giving love. Unfortunately, that's not what you see today in the culture, is it? Even more tragically, that's not really what you see in large part in the visible church today. Even many of those who claim to be Christian display the opposite of love, namely selfish hate. This is a selfish culture. Always has been. The world is always dominated by sinful people who are selfish. Those who are in the kingdom of darkness love themselves. That's what they really love. If you think about I told you before, think about what we love. You hear people talk about what they love. I love my wife, my children, my family, my car, my football team. There's a common word there, isn't it? My, my, my. What what people really love is themselves. There's many examples of the selfishness of our culture. Uh, Perhaps the most heinous one is that of abortion. The idea there is, hey, you know, I made a mistake, I committed immorality, I fornicated, but I really don't want to deal with the consequences, namely the child. So what do I do? I don't want to sacrifice my dreams my convenience, my career, my life, or the child. So what do I do? I kill it legally, in the womb. I kill it nobly, under the guise of medical care, health care. Then I just go on with my life. That's the opposite of love, isn't it? The Gospel says Jesus gave Himself for us. Abortion says I give my child for me. That is antithetical to love. That's one example. Another example seen in marriage. It's not uncommon today for people who say, I do, for better or for worse, 
than to turn around and leave the spouse because, you know, they're not meeting my conditions. They're not pleasing me in some way. They're not living up to my expectations. This is a selfish culture, a me-first culture. I've got to look out for number one. It's all about me. But it should never be that way among Christians, among those who name the name of Christ. Christians have been, tra- have been transformed by the sovereign grace of God in the Gospel. And one evidence of that transformation is a life of selfless love. We are the people of God. We are the church of God, the body of Christ, His representatives on the earth. We must manifest His love to the world. We are called to love. And in verses 17 through 21, John is going to present four more features of love that essentially become four more reasons for us to love. Four more motivations. And as we look at these this morning, one by one, my hope is that each of us would be motivated to love one another for the glory of our God. So four reasons to love. We looked at the first one last time. Let me review that one before we move on to the others. The first reason to love one another is because of the confidence of love. The confidence of love. Look at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Love is perfected with us. Love comes to its intended goal in us, to a kind of maturity in us, when it produces confidence, parousia, boldness, freedom of speech. We're bold, confident about the day of judgment. We can speak of the day of judgment. We can think of the day of judgment. We can look forward to the day of judgment with absolute confidence. We can do that. The end of verse 17 says, because as He is, so also are we in this world. We are as Christ was. Christ came into the world, lived a life of love. By His grace, we live a life of love in the world. He lived in the world as the Son of God. We live in the world as the children of God. He by nature, we by adoption. He was in a loving relationship with God as His Father. We are in a loving relationship with God as our Father in Christ. And therefore, we have confidence. We face the day of judgment with the same boldness that Christ can because we're clothed in Him. We're robed in His righteousness. And those who look at their life and see God's love displayed in their life to others, can be confident that they are saved, and therefore can be confident in the day of judgment. Verse 18 adds, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. It dispels fear. Fear involves punishment. I told you that word punishment, the Greek word there, appears only one other time in the New Testament. It's in Matthew 25, 46. And there it's in reference to eternal punishment in hell. We don't fear that as Christians. We don't fear God's wrath. If you're not a believer, you should fear that. If you're not a believer, you are under the wrath of God now, and you will experience the full expression of that wrath hereafter in hell. You should be terrified of the wrath of God. But if you're a Christian, and you have confident assurance in your salvation, you don't have to fear God's wrath. We're delivered from God's wrath. We do fear God's chastening hand. We fear His discipline, His fatherly displeasure. But we do not fear 
His terrifying wrath because we are not headed for wrath. We're delivered from judgment. Jesus took every drop of punishment that you deserve for your sin on the cross. No wrath remains for you. That's good news, isn't it? I know how sinful I've been just this morning, right? Jesus saw the best in me and He died for it. Took it all away. So we don't fear God's wrath. But that can only happen. You can only have that confidence if you know you're a Christian. Right? If you're not sure you're saved, you're going to fear God's wrath. You're going to fear death. You're going to fear hell. You're going to fear the grave. You're going to fear the afterlife. But if you can do what 1 John 5.13 says, you can know that you have eternal life, then you will not have to fear judgment. So that's the question. Do you see the love of God displayed in your life? Selfless, sacrificial love, mercy, grace, gentleness, kindness, graciousness. Do you see that? If you see that as the mark of your life, that's one sign that you're a Christian and therefore you can have confidence in the day of judgment. So that's reason number one. That's reason number one, the confidence of love. There are three more reasons here and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time looking at them because we've already seen these things over and over again. Nothing new for us here. But we'll look at them pretty quickly. So number two. Number two. We should love because of the source of love. The source of love. We saw that back in verse 7. We see it again in verse 19. Look at verse 19. We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. The word because there, the Greek word hati, it's a causative conjunction. It denotes reason. This is the reason for our love. This is the cause of our love. We love God and others because He first loved us. He's the source and the cause of our love. Just like what John said back in verse 7. Love is from God. Just as water is from a spring, love comes from the source, which is God. In verse 8 and verse 16, John said, God is love. God is love. He's the source of love, the fountain of love. Love is an essential characteristic of the divine nature. <clears throat> There's been an eternal expression of love among the persons of the Trinity from everlasting. God has loved each of us as Christians eternally in Christ. He is the source. His love comes first. It precedes our love. It's antecedent to our love, prior to our love. Back in verse 10, John emphasized that same reality, saying, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Preeminent love is seen not in our love for God, but His love for us. He loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us when we were hateful rebels. He loved us when we were His enemies. And in His love, He crushed and slaughtered His own Son for the salvation of His people. That's love, isn't it? That's love. Not a funny, fuzzy feeling. Not a nice Valentine's Day card, which those can be expressions of genuine love. But the greatest expression of love is the sacrifice of our Savior for us. He did that while we were enemies. God loved you before you even existed. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? God loved you before you even existed. 
Ephesians 1.4 says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us before the world was created. Verse 5 adds, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. God predetermined you, if you're a Christian, God predetermined you for salvation before the world was ever created, and He did it all in love. There's no way you could love God first. He loves you before creation. He loves you from eternity past. This is eternal love. We get in on the Trinitarian love that existed from before the creation of the universe. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You didn't choose me, but I chose you. You would have never chosen Christ had He not first chosen you. We would never love Christ had He not first loved us and chosen us in love and enabled us to love. Ephesians 2 describes us as being dead in sin. Dead in sin. Do you know what characterizes dead people? They're unresponsive, right? We could go to the graveyard today and invite dead people to Cracker Barrel with us. They're not coming. They're not going to respond to the invitation. Dead people don't respond The good news is the gospel resurrects us. The gospel resurrects us. That's why in Ephesians 2, Paul goes on and adds, But God, here's the good news, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? Salvation is not merely a decision that people make. It is a supernatural, sovereign work of grace in the heart that resurrects the dead sinner to life so that he can respond to the gospel. You and I were dead. We never would have come to Christ. Unless God first raised us and enabled us to come just as He did in John chapter 11 with Lazarus. Right? What did Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. Could Lazarus get up and come forth on his own? By His free will? What had to happen? Resurrection. God resurrected Him. He obeyed the command. He came forth. So it is with us. We have to be raised spiritually to life so that we can obey and come forth. So we love because of Him. We choose Him because of His choosing of us. So why then should you love other people? Because God first loved you. That's why. God loves you. All God is asking you to do is to emulate Him. God isn't asking you to do anything He hasn't done on your behalf. Imitate Him in love. And if you love other people, you can be confident that the only reason you do is because God's love is displayed in you. God has planted His own divine love in your heart. And that becomes an evidence of our salvation. And then that motivates us to love Him more, doesn't it? We're confident we're saved. We're confident that God loves us. And that makes us love Him. Luke 7, 47, Jesus teaches us that He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven much, loves much. If you have an apprehension of the greatness of your salvation and the greatness of God's love to you and your forgiveness of sin, you will love God much. And you will love people much. So what's needed then is constant, listen to this, what's needed is constant, contemplation of the greatness of God's love displayed to us in the Gospel. 
we should preach the gospel to our hearts daily. The duty of the Christian life is always rooted in what God has done, right? The, the imperatives are rooted in the indicatives. Love one another because God loved you. Because Christ loved you. John Gill said this, The larger the discoveries and applications of the love of God be, the more does love to Him increase and abound. Then he adds, Nothing more animates and inflames our love to God than the consideration of the earliness of His love to us, of its being before ours, which shows that it is free, sovereign, distinguishing, and unmerited. Did you get that? In other words, nothing inflames our love for God like contemplation of His eternal antecedent love for us. He loved us, and therefore we love one another. Matthew Henry said, His love is the incentive, the motive, and the moral cause of ours. His love produces ours. Henry goes on to say, We cannot but love so good a God. We can't help it. Those who have really experienced His saving love can't help but love Him back. We can't help but love so good a God who was first in the act and work of love, who loved us when we were both unloving and unlovely, who loved us at so great a rate, who has been seeking and soliciting our love at the expense of His Son's blood, and has condescended to beseech us to be reconciled unto Him. Henry adds, Let heaven and earth be amazed at such love. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing love that you, my God, should die for me. Amazing love. His love is first. His love produces our love. His love is the source of love. There's no love without His love. So that's a good reason to love, isn't it? If you love one another, it gives evidence that you're in a loving relationship with God. It provides assurance of salvation. And it gives evidence that His love is planted in your heart. That's good enough for me. I hope it's good enough for you. So we should love, secondly then, because of the source of love. The source of love. But thirdly, and these overlap a little bit, but thirdly, we should love one another because of the test of love. The test of love. Look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John speaks in such black and white terms, doesn't he? John is so straightforward. You're either this or you're that. You're either a Christian or an antichrist. A believer or an unbeliever. A child of God or a child of Satan. There is no in-between. There's no middle ground. You're either for me or against me. There's no neutrality. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, it's the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments. He's a liar. Here, it's the one who says he loves his brother but doesn't love God. He's the liar. There are several other statements similar to this in 1 John. These if-we-say statements. Chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we're liars. Chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we're making God out to be the liar. What blasphemy is that? Chapter 2, verse 9, The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. 
John is concerned with exposing false professors. Exposing false professors. In this particular context, it applies to the Gnostic heretics, but ultimately it applies to anyone throughout any age who professes to be in Christ and yet his life testifies against him. The one who Titus 1.16 says, profess to know God, but with their lives they deny Him. They say they know God, but their lives deny Him. They draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. So John says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, you know that claim is false. That person's a liar. He's lying about loving God. The basic definition of a Christian, by the way, is someone who loves God. 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul says, If anyone doesn't love the Lord, he is accursed, anathema, damned. Romans 80 says that God works all things for good. Most people stop there, don't they? But that's not where it ends. God works all things for good for who? Those who love Him. Those who love Him. That's a Christian. Someone who loves God. However, if you profess to love God, but you hate those made in His image... If you profess to love God and you hate those whom He's redeemed by grace, your, your profession is, is wrong. It's a false profession. It's a lie. You cannot hate the image bearers of God and yet love the God in whose image they bear. Which means if you habitually display selfishness, self-centeredness, hatred to your brother, you're not a Christian. Are we talking about perfect love? Again, no. We, I'm not there. You're not there. None of us are there. In fact, it's hard to be a pastor sometimes because you've got to preach these things and you're like, wait a minute. I don't meet this perfectly either. I fall short. We're talking about the habitual, dominant characteristic of your life. Is your life dominated by love, increasing love, or selfish, self-centered hatred? That's the question. No one can love God and hate his brother, John says, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You can't. It's an inability. If you don't love your brother, you can't love God because you're not born again. Because those who are born again will love both God and their neighbor. Back in verse 12, John stated that no one has seen God at any time. So how then do we verify our love for the unseen God? By loving our neighbor whom we can see. God can't be seen, but our neighbor can, and we love God and display our love for God by loving our visible neighbor. In other words, our love for God is measured by our love for other people. The idea today is I'll just be a monk, go out in my study and read my books and stay away from people. I don't need the local church, I'll just stay away, you know? And then I'll be sanctified. Sanctification is measured in relationship, right? Anyone can think they're holy if they're by themselves all day. But when you're around other people, that's when it gets hard, right? When you're around other sinners. But that is where God and His sovereignty measures our sanctification in the context of community in the local church. So love for God displays itself by love for neighbor. The evidence that we love the invisible God is we love those who are visible. That makes sense, right? Thomas Watson said this, Bible knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. That's sober, isn't it? We can alter his words and say this, Bible knowledge without love will be but a torch to light men to hell. Paul said something similar, right? If you 
know all mysteries and you got wonderful gifts of prophecy, but you don't love. You're just a noisy symbol. That's all you are. You're just a gong making noise. Love for other people is the test of our love for God. So you can't say you love God if you show indifference to your neighbor. You can't do that. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you can't even love those right in front of you, how can you love the invisible God you can't see? It's impossible. Daniel Aiken said, If you do not manage to love His creatures, then you cannot love the Creator. If you do not have the capacity to love His children, then you cannot love their Father. Exactly right. Calvin added, God offers Himself to us in those men who bear His image. God offers Himself to us in those men who bear His image. Then he adds, How fallacious is the boast of everyone who says he loves God and yet loves not the image of God which is before his eyes. That's exactly right. <coughs> James spoke about that, didn't he? In James chapter 3, verse 9. speaks of those who with their tongue they bless their Lord and Father, but yet they curse those made in His image. What blasphemy. What hypocrisy. What inconsistency. The evidence of our vertical love is our horizontal love. The evidence of our love for God is our love for men. That's important. That's what makes love so important. Remember the passage of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25? Jesus says, You saw me hungry and you fed me. You saw me thirsty. You gave me something to drink. Saw me naked and clothed me. They said, When, Lord? What did He say? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Christ so identifies Himself with His people that to serve them is to serve Him. And that then is the evidence and the test of our love for God. So we should love, thirdly then, because of the test of love. Our love for others is the test. But one more, one more. You're saying, wow, Jamie's getting through these quickly, isn't he? I should have got through these last time, but I got called up. One more. We should love one another because of the confidence of love, the source of love, the test of love, and finally, because of the command to love. The command to love. Look at verse 21. In this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John ends the section the way he began it, with a command to love. This is important. John just keeps telling us the same thing. It's as if we just aren't going to get it, right? We tell our kids all the time, you're hard-headed, you don't listen. We're the same way. We don't listen, so we've got to hear it over and over and over again. This is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an invitation. This isn't good advice. This is a command. And notice he says, we have this command from Him. This isn't a command from merely John. This isn't merely a command from the apostles. This isn't merely a command from men. This is a command from heaven, from God, from Christ. God commands us to love all throughout Scripture. Christ commanded us to love all throughout His earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit supernaturally teaches us to love in regeneration, the new birth. This is a command from the triune God. And the command is that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The one who loves God should show the reality of that love by loving those made in His image. So ultimately then, it is an issue of obedience. Obedience to God. Obedience to the law of God. 
It's the commandment that we know fulfills all the other commandments. To go wrong here is to go wrong everywhere. If you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. If you don't love God, you don't obey His commandments, you're not a Christian. And your faith in Christ is false anyway. And again, we're not saying this. We have to clarify, right? We're not saying that if you go out and love other people, God's going to love you because of that. That's a false gospel. We're not saying that if you go out and love other people, you earn the favor of God. That's damning heresy. What we're saying is, the evidence that you love God and that God loves you savingly is that you love other people. It's the fruit, not the root. It's the evidence, not the meritorious cause of our salvation. But it is then an issue of obedience. God commands us to love. This is a love that forgives. It's a love that shows mercy, a love that bears burdens, a love that displays grace and gentleness, sacrifices, it serves. But it's a love that does not tolerate sin or evil or error. It's a love that rejects the evil system of the world. It's a love that is expressed toward God and those created in His image. And all of us, therefore, should examine ourselves this morning to see if that love is the mark of our lives. If it isn't, if you're living a life of constant disobedience to this command to love, you're not in Christ, you do not love God, you're still in danger of judgment. And if that's you today, please come talk with me after the service. As always, I'd be glad to counsel you as to the true condition of your soul. But if you look at your life and you see love, you can praise the Lord. You know there's a work of grace that has begun in you, and you know that He who began the good work in you will bring it to perfection. That's the good news. So we have four reasons then for love. Four good reasons. We should love one another because of the confidence of love, because of the source of love, the test of love, and the command to love. If you love other people, you'll have assurance of salvation and therefore confidence in judgment. If you love other people, you'll have evidence that God loved you first and that you're in a saving relationship with Him. If you love other people, you'll give evidence that you actually love God. And if you love other people, you're living in obedience to the command of God. Those are four really good reasons. Let me read the flow of thought back to you for a minute. Think, of it, think about it backwards. If you obey God's command to love one another in verse 21, you'll know you love God, verse 20. That proves God first loves you, verse 19. That gives you confidence in judgment, verses 17 and 18. Is that good enough for you? It's good enough for me. So brothers and sisters, may we delight in the love of God for us. And may we display that same love to others for our assurance and for the glory of our Savior. And then, and then His love will cast out fear and then you'll have confidence in the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power, its authority, its clarity, and even its, oftentimes, its repetitious nature. Peter said he wanted to stir his readers up by way of reminder, and that's what happens to us frequently when we open the Word of God. We're constantly reminded by Scripture. Lord, we are often silly sheep that go astray, and we need our shepherd through His Word to bring us back. And we thank You for these constant warnings. And we know John didn't write this with a negative purpose in mind. His goal wasn't to cause the believers there to doubt their salvation, but to give them confidence in their salvation. That they were the real Christians. That they had the real truth. And that the heretics were the wrong ones. 
And so my prayer today is that each of us, after hearing passages like this, could come to the conclusion that indeed we are in the faith. Having examined our hearts, we are confident that we belong to Christ. So give us grace, Lord, as we go out into the world today and throughout the week and the rest of our lives to grow in love, to display divine love by grace, a love that we know is imperfect in this life, but a love that we know will be completely perfected in the next life, and we do long for that. But in the meantime, give us grace to love for your glory. Amen.